Well, hey gang, and good morning from the Prentice House in coronavirus semi-lockdown. I'm sitting here in my slippers under a blanket with my dog lying beside me, which is a pretty typical morning setup for me, but certainly not typical for leading liturgy. But since you're probably in your slippers too, maybe sitting on your couch in your cute jammies, maybe this will work. Well, Matt is going to be sending out the weekly bulletin with links to songs later this afternoon. So what I'm going to do is first read a <clears throat> lovely prayer written by Jessica Downing for the prayers of the people. It's a beautiful sort of mashup of written prayer and scripture and is included on the blog if you want to follow along as I read. And then I'm going to read our gospel passage and give a short reflection on that passage and then... I'll pray for us. This is Jessica's prayer first. Jesus, you have always existed and you are supreme over all creation. You hold creation together. You give everyone life and breath and everything else. Your hands are made. Your hands made and formed each of us. All the days ordained for us were written in your book before one of them came to be. You said... Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We who dwell in the secret place of the Most High, we shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in Him I will trust. We shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. When you, Jesus, came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed you. A man with leprosy came and knelt before you and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You were indignant. You reached out your hand and touched the man. I am willing, you said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. When you, Jesus, came into Peter's house, you saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. You touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on you. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to you, and you drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill... What was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, you took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. Dear God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory, give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people and your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead. 
and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. With this in mind, we pray that you make us worthy of your calling and that by your power you may bring to fruition our every desire for goodness and our every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him according to your grace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then this is our gospel reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. I started this sermon early enough in the week for once for it to have developed a certain shape that by the time we decided to cancel our service for a worldwide pandemic, it seemed a bit distant from what must be on everyone's minds at the moment. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Mark's gospel as a sort of radical political manifesto, the premise of which has extraordinarily important and highly relevant things to say about our modern lives, living as we do in a more contemporary version of a Roman empire that Jesus and his followers sought to disrupt and to subvert. Now that revolutionary angle certainly isn't set aside in this gospel reading. This healing is provocative in its setting and it undermines the religious establishment who, instead of celebrating this man's miraculous healing, they grumble on the sidelines in a who-does-he-think-he-is kind of way. Why and how can they be so callous? Well, Jesus isn't 
credentialed by them. And obviously he's stealing their limelight because Mark tells us that crowds were gathered around this house that you couldn't push through to get in. He had, in other words, become something of a local celebrity in Capernaum. And so maybe people were, weren't were frequenting, frequenting their old stuffy synagogues quite like they used to. And Jesus chooses to do it, this healing, in the informal kind of populous setting of a home rather than on their home turf at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, by the way, you may not have noticed this before, but this is likely Jesus's house that this happens in. Mark tells us in verse 1, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the few people heard that he had come home, which means he had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Some translations even say word got out around that he was at home. Well, that changes our mental picture of the setting, doesn't it? And to me, it makes his response to these guys essentially breaking into his house rather comical and quite revealing of what he's all about. You see, these guys, they skip the line outside and they somehow climb up on Jesus's roof and punch a hole in it and let down a stretcher in the middle of Jesus's teaching and presumably healing. And he isn't offended. Unlike the scribes and the teachers, he doesn't say, who do you think you are? How dare you break custom? Or get to the back of the line and wait like everyone else. Instead, he says, son, or maybe child, your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know what this man's sins are. In fact, he's not even asking for forgiveness. And he didn't really do the felony breaking and entering either. It was his friends who are presumably still up on the roof looking down through this gaping hole that they've made in Jesus' roof. Meanwhile, there's a large crowd gathered outside. So to have him pronounce a spiritual blessing like this over him after skipping the line and crashing in through Jesus' roof, that would have been quite something. But Jesus knows also that that's not the real reason that these friends have brought him here. They've broken protocol. They've been impertinent because why? They want him to walk again. Jesus also knows that being paralyzed like this isn't merely an economic curse, pretty much committing someone to a life of poverty because they couldn't work. But things like this, paralysis that is, are often interpreted by the surrounding community, and perhaps by the individual themselves as a curse from God. So the one who claims the authority of God forgives him, saying that despite what you may think, despite how you may interpret this physical affliction, you are not afflicted by God. You are not cursed by God. In fact, God himself forgives you. By the way, every time Jesus' disciples 
want him to pass judgment, to connect someone's physical suffering or sickness to a personal, identifiable sin, he won't do it. Later this afternoon, if you want to, you can take a look at the story of the blind beggar in John 9 or the fall of the Tower of Siloam in Luke 13 for an example of this. While there are surely consequences to our choices and to our sin, drawing a direct line between act and consequence is a dangerous game because it is the prerogative of God alone. This man Jesus seems to be saying is not paralyzed because God is angry with him personally. He himself is not offensive to God, but, and this is the hope of the gospel, his infirmity is, his paralysis is offensive to God. Jesus you may remember, weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Not because he's lost his friend, he's minutes away from raising him from the dead. But he weeps because death itself is sad. Because death is an intruder into God's world. Because death threatens the happiness of his friends. Now Jesus does not provide an answer here or anywhere else in the Bible, to my knowledge, of why death is allowed at all, why people in God's created world must suffer things like paralysis, for God could have presumably created a world in which these things were prevented from entering in. The larger narrative of the Bible tells us that in some ways sin While we can't and shouldn't correlate individual sin or sins to individual cases of illness, sin is indirectly to blame because death and disease did not exist in the world that God envisioned his children living in apart from the invasion of sin. Sin opened the door, you see, to the virus of death, the infection of pain and of suffering. And for some inscrutable reason, God did not create a world where this couldn't happen, but instead chose to redeem a world in which it has. That's the larger context that frames Jesus dealing with this man. We see in Jesus' actions God's heart toward the world and toward his children who live in a world marred by suffering and grief and sickness and paralysis. Jesus lives in this world, and his intention is to heal it. In a way, these things are instances of what we could call uncreation, that are working against the purposes for which the world and for which humanity, you and I, were created to begin with. And that is perhaps why Jesus is not content to merely pronounce forgiveness, as important as that is, and as much as we all long to hear that from one another and certainly from God. But Jesus will, with the authority of God as the Son of Man, 
You can look at Daniel 7 for the context of that phrase. He will perform a healing as an act of recreation. For this man to walk again, what has to happen? Well, the injury to his spinal cord, let's presume for a moment that this is some kind of physical injury, the injury to his spinal cord would need to be reversed. Nerve connections would, in fact, need to be recreated. And this healing, therefore, is paradigmatic for the kind of recreation that the whole world needs the kind of recreation that Jesus wants to bring into our world and into our individual lives. This healing, though mysteriously infrequent, Jesus doesn't heal everyone, even in the Gospels. This healing is still alive with hope, even for us so much later in our world, for it makes clear that Jesus comes on behalf of God, the Father, to offer not only spiritual forgiveness, but bodily healing. It tells us that God cares for broken limbs and skinned knees and speech disorders and mental illness and addiction and, yes, viral infections. And it seems that he also loves it when his people come up with audacious, presumptuous, impertinent plans to find healing for their friends, even if it means breaking into God's house. What this means is that he invites us up close with all of our hurts and scars and all of our infection. He doesn't distance himself from us. And while we can't expect from this passage that every wound will be healed in this way immediately, for we still live in the in-between time that lies in between fall and total restoration. This healing, friends, points to a time where we won't even have to ask. Sickness is a viral intruder into God's world that will be eradicated once and for all. And that is humanity's greatest hope. I don't know why God would permit something like the coronavirus or viruses that are even more fatal. And frankly, it makes me mad. But I do know that passages like this show us a God who does not distance himself from our suffering, that it makes him mad too. Not mad at us, but mad at the viruses and the sicknesses and the diseases that harm us and make us sick. And that perhaps this time, that is the time that we're going through, that the world is reeling because we don't know how to deal specifically with coronavirus. This is a time where his church might pray presumptuous prayers on behalf of ourselves and our neighbors that we might come up with 
audacious plans to provide community for, friendship to, maybe even rescue for those of us who are sick, are in need around us. And I pray that this would be so for in town. I pray that all of you, wherever you are this morning, would sense God's tears for the sadness in your own life, for your anxiety, and yet you would all have hope knowing that he cares for you. He cares for our little church, and he's working toward the rescue of our whole planet. And I pray that over these next few weeks that in town might seek out creative ways to care for one another and to care for our world, even as we're prevented from meeting together, at least on a large-scale basis. So friends, many blessings to all of you during this anxious time. Let's pray. God, would you heal those who are sick in our congregation? Would you prevent this virus from infecting us further, especially those who are in vulnerable populations, those who are immunocompromised, the elderly, the young, the already sick. Father, I pray that your healing would come upon us and that we would sense your presence in our midst. Father, I pray that we would also be a gift of kindness to our community, that we would think creatively about how to engage with one another and how to engage into the sickness that is ravaging our community or that potentially will, and that we would find creative ways to meet with one another and to think about ways in which we can help to serve, help to lift the burdens, to be a calming presence in the lives of our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family. And Father, I pray that you would bless in town that you would let us know that you are close to us in our suffering and in our anxiety, and I pray that we would have hope, the hope of the gospel, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. It does look sunny outside, so maybe get out and take a walk, pray with one another, pray for our our city, pray for our church, and enjoy your respite. Many blessings.